You are listening to The Gateway Church, located in Ferrisburg, Michigan. You can learn more about us by visiting thegateway.church or like and follow us on Facebook, where you can watch full services, keep up with all that is going on, and get connected. Thank you, Pastor Bobby. Being a little new at this, I always keep my best sermon notes on the palm of my hand. And I wrote that down during that last song, to be consumed with who he is. And I want us all to remember, as I'm going through this, to really do that. Be consumed with who Jesus is as you hear the details of this story. Pastor Ben also mentioned about the break-in this morning. I wanted to say the real reason the cops showed up is because I have a radical element that always follows me. So please feel free to be part of that radical element in a spiritual way if you could. And it is my two-year anniversary as a preacher up here. Two years ago, Pastor Ben opened the door and allowed me to come up here and speak. And I remember meeting with him a few weeks before that about the details of what he wanted me to speak about. And he said, I said, what do you want me to speak about? He says, your big mouth. Your big mouth? Yeah, your big mouth. My big mouth? Yeah, my big mouth. Okay, well, the first message being about my big mouth, a little intimidating or insulting perhaps. But what it was talking about was how we can damage people by misusing our tongue. Today we're going to speak about something that is perhaps the same, but maybe even the opposite of how we can speak through silence. I want to share with you a story, one of my favorite family stories. Not the favorite story of my family, but it's the one I like to tell. This was about 25 years ago. Pam and I were upstairs. My boys were downstairs. They were ages three and five. They had passed through the terrible twos. And after the story, you might wonder, well, how terrible were those twos after you hear that? It had been a while, so I walked downstairs. You know, I needed to check on them. So heading down the steps, I get down to the bottom step, and I behold this scene of destruction that I was not prepared for. Covering the entire basement were little piles of shiny, colorful, broken glass, all spaced about two to three feet (laughs) apart. Even back then, they were doing social distancing. (laughs) What happened was my two little angels decided to strip the tree of its ornaments, and they found sport with smashing each one with a hammer. It made a really interesting sound. I will agree. These were keepsakes that my wife Pam had kept through her whole life and were irreplaceable. Both of my boys were there on the floor, weapon of mass destruction in hand, eyes the size of golf balls, silent. I tried to be a good dad. I went back upstairs and I said, Pam, just be calm, but you need to see something. So as she came down to the bottom step and beheld the disaster, she cried. And I know the boys, seeing her tears, knew how awful that was. We didn't need to do any kind of punishment. They understood it. But there they stood silent before 
the judges of their little world. We're going to speak about another who stood silent before his accusers and judges, but this time he was not guilty. The prophet Isaiah spoke about it. We're familiar with much of what Isaiah said. He's quoted often in the New Testament. We're very familiar with Isaiah 53, where he speaks about the crucifixion. Starting in verse 7, it says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I wonder what the people seven and a half centuries before Christ were thinking when they read these words. Perhaps beautiful poetry. Well, what could that mean? But Isaiah prophesied with pinpoint accuracy what would happen with Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. As we continue this study in Mark, we're coming close to the end here now. We're in this Passion Week. Pastor Ben has already talked about some of the details leading up to this. We're going to read chapter 15, verse 1 through 5. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So that Pilate But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. We're going to end it right there. I want to have a little build-up to this story. It's a build-up that's not just for today's chapter of it, but is useful all the way to the end of the entire Easter story. There are characters involved with this story. The first one, not such a character, is Mark, the author. And Mark actually appears in the story briefly. Then, of course, there's the main character, Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to pay that price for our sin. There are two men called Annas and Caiaphas. These are the high priests. These are the real spiritual and actually political leaders of Israel. Annas is the former high priest who was deposed by the previous Roman governor. Caiaphas is now the current high priest who was in place by the current Roman governor. Yet Annas still has authority. Then we have these people called the Sanhedrin or the Jerusalem Council. 
And this, as I look at it, is sort of like looking at the Supreme Court. They had the power and the jurisdiction as of the Supreme Court of the United States, but since Israel is really so small, you could fit it today in Lake Michigan, it's more like the size and the jurisdiction of the Michigan Supreme Court. But historically and traditionally, they were the 70 elders of Moses. But there's no carry-through for that in the Bible. And it seems like they really appear and solidify between the Old and the New Testament. But these 70 plus the chief priests, these 71 of the Sanhedrin, are the ones who rule Israel, both religiously and politically. And now that the Romans are there, they are appointed by the Romans. They're made up by the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And I relate those to perhaps the large religious institutions such as the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, and choose any other of the big ones in there that all agree on some of the main points, but they differ and squabble about much of the others. And they have largely become so politicized in today's society. Then we have Herod. This is Herod Antipas. It's not Herod of the, the Christmas story. This is his son, one of his sons, who's been given uh, jurisdiction over Galilee, the, the state of Galilee. We'll call it the state or province of Galilee. And then there's Pilate's wife, who shows up briefly with some key information. There's a man named Barabbas, who I call the lottery winner because he was destined to die a cruel death and deserved it, but he got out of it. There's the Roman soldiers. And these, these cannot be really related to us in America. When I, when I try to make a comparison, I compare it to the National Guard. But our National Guard are much more kinder and gentle people. If they're brutal, it might be because they had to handcuff you a little bit too tight. But the Roman soldiers, even at their most gentle aspect, probably bound you really tight, shut the blood off from your hands, and kicked you around. And then there's Pontius Pilate. He's the one who really makes the decision in this story. The setting is this harsh land of Israel. It's a land that's a crossroads of the world. Everything in history seems to pivot around this land and this story. It was once known as the land of Canaan. It was promised to Abraham. It was sought after by Moses and the children of Israel. It was conquered by Joshua. Then the Israelites occupied it. The Assyrians came and divided the north. The Babylonians came and divided the south. The Persians came and pushed them out. Then the Greeks came in and overflowed it with their culture. And now the Romans are occupying this largest empire the world had ever known. We focus on a little hill. It's a city that was hewn from rocks, surrounded by stone, and now brutalized by an army. It was once known as the Mountains of Moriah. Abraham climbed that mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. David, King David, purchased a threshing floor where they had an oxen stamping out the grain, purchased that threshing floor which would be built by his son 
as the first, the, uh, the first temple. That temple would be destroyed and the people carried off. Then the Persians allowed Zerubbabel to come back and rebuild a temple and to have Nehemiah come and surround it by a wall and to have Ezra come and reinstitute the Jewish religion in that spot. Now, Romans legions occupy it. It's this little city of Jerusalem, once known as Salem, whose king was Melchizedek, has a strange and interesting connection with the King Jesus that is there today. And if you see it in the news, it's recognizable by that golden dome of the rock which covers it today. The times was this period of Passover. It's when every Jewish family would make a yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb for the sins of their family. Little did they know the final and perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus, had already entered that city. He came as their Messiah, but he was not recognized by those Jewish leaders as the Messiah because they were looking for a militant army-type man who was going to set in place this kingdom and rule the world forever. They got it half right because he's going to do that. But on his first appearance, he came to pay for sin. He came and he loved people. He preached repentance. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And that's what got him killed. Because when he raised Lazarus from the dead, those Jewish leaders felt threatened with their power. Or that this man might raise up an uprising and Rome would come down heavy on them. And they said, he needs to be stopped. The Jewish leader Caiaphas said, better that one man should die than the nation perish. And that one man was Jesus. So this chapter of the passion story begins on a Friday morning. We've already passed through Thursday. Jesus sat at that table with the Last Supper, the last remembrance of the actual Passover lamb. And he made a new covenant, covenant where now we recall, we remember it through communion. They all departed. Judas went and did his deed. Jesus was in the garden. The mob showed up. The disciples dispersed. And we read about this mysterious young man who left, ran away, naked. Scholars believe that is Mark. Because there's a tradition back then that the author would not mention himself by name in his writings. But yet, by placing himself as a character, it seems he ended up in the story. This mob now binds Jesus. And they are obviously going to be brutal with him. And they take him to the house of Annas, the former high priest, who in reality really calls the shots. 
And Annas says to him, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And he tries to trip up Jesus. And he's there with the elders of the Sanhedrin and the council. And they're all firing questions at him. They slap him to try to intimidate him, to get the answers they want. And he refuses to speak anything but truth. Then that doesn't work. So Anna sends him to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas does the same thing. He is now the acting high priest. And together, they're trying to intimidate him even more. They're slapping him. They're asking him questions. They're accusing him of things. And they ask him, are you the son of God? And he agrees. That's the one thing that's blasphemy. He deserves death. But we can't do it. Rome's got our hands tied. So we have to send him and get Rome's approval. So they send Jesus to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman procurator for Judea. And Pilate now immediately sees this man is innocent. And beyond that, it seems that the Jewish people really love Jesus. And Pilate is thinking, boy, if I condemn this guy, there could be an uprising. I've got to avoid this. And that guy is innocent. What charges do you bring against him? Because he's not guilty. Then in all this discussion, they find out he's from Galilee. <laughs> Problem solved. Send him to Herod. Herod is the governor of Galilee. It's his responsibility. So they grab Jesus and they brutally haul him over to Herod's house, who happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Herod is excited. He's heard about Jesus. He wants to see a miracle. So he sits down and he asks Jesus to perform. But Jesus will not be a circus performer. He refuses. So then Herod is angry, cloaks him in a purple robe, and he makes him out to be a stooge. He insults him about being this king. And then he sends him angrily back to Pilate. And now Pilate realizes he's got to do something here. How do I get out of this? And he's reasoning with the crowd, and he's asking Jesus. He's literally sitting down with Jesus, asking him to give him something. Work with me, Jesus. I'm trying to set you free. Do you not know? I could either set you free or crucify you. Say something. But Jesus gives him nothing to work with. Then Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with this man, this innocent man, because I've been struggling in a dream. And the Romans held dreams in high regard. They believed that is how the gods spoke to them. But he made no progress. He even says, okay, I've got something here. All right, I'll agree to it. Let's just condemn him. He's guilty. He's guilty of death. He's condemned, will pass sentence. But you have this tradition. At Passover, you release one criminal. Then we can release him. It doesn't work. Everybody shouts, crucify him. Send us Barabbas. Finally, the high priest Caiaphas pulls the trump card. And he says, this man claims that he is the king of the Jews. But you and I know we have no king but Caesar. 
if you honor this man. He is your king. And Pilate realizes, if I don't kill Jesus, my emperor will kill me. He passes judgment, washes his hands, and sends Jesus to be crucified. I wonder, through all of this, through the crucifixion, the ascension, and to see what happened with the church after that, I wonder how long Pilate continued to marvel at this man who stood silent and never spoke a word in his own defense. History doesn't let us in, give us any clues to know. Through all of this mistreatment and injustice, Jesus never reacted. He responded appropriately. He spoke only what was true. He refused to defend himself. He controlled his demeanor and his actions. And through that, he controlled all the events of this entire scenario. He said in John that no man takes my life. I give it freely. There's so much that can be learned through this. So I've picked out a few things. The first one that comes to my mind is that anti-Semitism is not justified. It's so often said that his own people killed him. First of all, Jesus volunteered his life. He came for a purpose, and no one was going to stop that purpose. The average Jewish person never played any role in any of this. Those crowds you hear about were incited and worked up by those religious elders. Pilate was the one who passed judgment under the encouragement of Caiaphas. And the Roman soldiers are the ones who performed the execution. And I'll just read this verse for you. This tops it all off. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Second thing is we have no right to complain. Yet I find myself with all these little petty complaints. Throughout this winter, I walk outside just in time to get in my car and drive to work and find frost on my windshield. Where's my scraper? Gas going to $3 a gallon. Yet I still don't have to walk to work. Although that would probably be an improvement. Couldn't sleep at all last night. But I should be thankful that I still have a nice warm bed and a secure home. And this is one that's getting more common with myself and others my age. I'm getting old. Things aren't working like they used to. Some things aren't working at all. But we should never regret growing old because there's so many who never get there. In Philippians, Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. 
so that you may become blameless and pure. Now, this is a dumb question, but have you ever been judged? Of course you have. We've all been judged for things that we've been guilty of. We've been judged for things that we weren't guilty of. But have you ever stood before someone who judged you for something you didn't do and just not defended yourself? It's pretty hard to do. But some of the things that we're commonly judged on, you're not qualified for that job. Or you're just not qualified for what, we're, what you're doing. Oh, you live over there? Hmm. You never went to college, did you? Or you went to that college? Here's one I wish we are all judged as. Why are you always so happy? Even with bad news, there's still a smile on your face. You are just not normal. May we all be not normal. And today we complicate things even further by saying, you know, whether you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask, whether you're taking the vaccine or you're not taking the vaccine, whether you agree with the government or you don't agree with the government, a few weeks ago, we had a missionary here who said, you just can't seem to please everybody. So what is the believer's response to personal injustice? You know, the New Testament is full of examples of how we should respond. But I'm just going to give you the words of Jesus here without commentary, without explanation, and let the Holy Spirit speak to each of us. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, according to Jesus, we should be less offended. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. It's the turn the other cheek. We've heard that many times. According to Jesus, we should loosen the grip on our possessions because in verse 40, if someone wants to take your tunic, give him your coat also, a tunic was something that was a little bit less significant than a coat. He's actually telling you to give even more. Psalm 24 says the whole earth is the Lord's. We're simply stewards of what God gave us. And Jesus had said, store up your riches in heaven, not on earth. Think about this. Jesus never owned property that we know about. In Matthew 8, 20, he says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The context of that is speaking about people who are sent out in missionary work and they itinerate. They never really have a good, solid home. Was Jesus homeless? I don't think so. But where did he live? Probably lived in his family's home or maybe with friends, maybe even more itinerant as he got closer to those final days. According to Jesus, we should assign less value to our personal time. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The Romans had this law that if they wanted you to carry their equipment or whatever for a mile, you couldn't say anything, just pick it up and go with them a mile. But Jesus said, go the second mile. Give them reason to ask you 
Why are you not normal? And most important, I think, of this, Jesus did not retaliate, nor should we. Paul wrote in Romans, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him drink. Worship team, if you could please come. As Pilate stood in front of Jesus and Jesus was silent, he marveled at that silence. He marveled at Jesus' silence. You and I will have an opportunity to do the same, except we will be the ones silent and marveling at him. Because there are two judgments yet to come. Maybe you didn't realize that when you signed up for salvation. But you and I will stand before Jesus. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. In Romans, Romans 14, for all, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves. Corinthians 3. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring light to it. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, such as that made from gold, silver, and costly stones, that builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, such that was built with wood, hay, or straw, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved. You see, the believer's not condemned but we will be judged for our works. There is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it may be a rather awkward moment, to put it lightly, when we stand before Jesus and have to give account of the things we never did. After the first service, something came to mind. So what do we do as believers? There's a thing called redeeming the time. It's in Ephesians 15, 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. In the context here, it doesn't mean it makes it all right. But what I'm saying from this is that if you didn't know before that you're going to stand before Jesus and give account for your life even though you're saved, you do know now. And today you're responsible. From this day forward, follow the Lord. Circumspectly, as they say. From this day forward. yet another judgment one that I pray none of us in this room have to stand before it's called the great white throne in 740 BC during the Assyrian invasion the prophet Isaiah had a vision in the year that King Isaiah died I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple 200 years later during the Babylonian captivity a man we know named Daniel had a dream as I looked thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat his clothing was as white as snow his hair his head was white like wool his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him thousands upon thousands attended him ten thousand times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Some decades after our Lord walked this earth on a prison island of Patmos, this was a place, it was a penal colony where people were sent to do hard labor, busting rock in a quarry. Jesus' most beloved disciple, John, received this revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. That's figurative language that tells us that that moment in time was so intense that it was as if earth had fled away a book was opened which was the book of life anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire how can a person be sure that their name is written in that book. Jesus said in John 3, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Jesus will be that judge. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. God's word clearly teaches to us that we will all stand in judgment one day. Believers will answer for their deeds. Lost will face him at that great white throne. Wise men and women will prepare now to not stand at that white throne, but to look forward to giving an account before Christ. Just like Pilate. I will stand before him and marvel. Some will marvel for eternity at what they missed and still at his glory separate from him. Some will marvel for eternity at his glory, his grace, and his mercy and fellowship with him for eternity. of these judgments will you stand? Thanks, Rocky. A masterful job looking at the three trials, unique perspective. And this morning, I want to just uh, close with a, a challenge that you do not want to be seated before that white throne of judgment. And today is a, a day where you can make the change and you can surrender your life to Jesus. When I was nine years old, it was November 12th, 1985, my grandma was over and I was asking her questions about how do you get to heaven? How do I avoid hell? You know, those types of things that a lot of times kids will talk about. My grandma said, go get your Bible, and she took me through the Romans' road to salvation. And we started in Romans 3.23, where it says, for, all, for everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it doesn't take a genius to understand that. Every single one of us have sinned. And then she moved on to Romans 3.10, where it says, no one's righteous, not even one. And then to Romans 5.12, so death uh, spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. A little later in Romans 6.23, and I was highlighting these verses as I went, she showed me that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what I deserved was death, to be separated from God for eternity. But then Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then I think we move to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And then back to 
one more verse, Romans 10, 9 and 10. This message is a, the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with you or with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. The reason I take you through that is because I am convinced more than ever that week in and week out, there are people that will find themselves here at the Gateway Church that need Jesus, need to respond to a salvation call, to avoid eternal damnation. And we're heading to Easter quickly here in the next few weeks, and we're going to look at the crucifixion, and then at Easter, of course, the resurrection as we finish up the book of Mark. And it's going to be a glorious uh, conclusion to this series that's been uh, a little longer than I expected, but uh, the Lord is good. And this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to surrender your heart to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is your day of salvation. Or if you're away from God and you have not been serving Him and maybe you've turned your back, maybe you served at one point, or today is your day of salvation coming back. But then the second part is the joy of bringing others along with you. There are people in our lives that we love. There are people in your life that you love, that you rub shoulders with, that you work with. They're family members that need to know Jesus. And this is the season to be more passionate than ever to say, you know what? We exist as a church to reach one more on the lakeshore. So let's do this. I'm going to ask that everyone stand. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and let's keep the lights on uh, so I can see. Uh, first service, I couldn't really catch catch a, the eye. But if you're here today and you need the Lord to forgive you of your sins, I want to offer you that free gift of salvation. With everyone's eyes closed, a head bowed, we're going to go traditional here. If you're here and you know without a doubt that if you were to die today or if the Lord were retur to return uh, in the second coming, in the rapture, if you know for sure that you'd make it to heaven, would you just lift your hand if you know without a shadow of a doubt? Yeah. Lots of, lots of people. You can put your hands down. If you were unable to raise your hand, if you're not certain, and you're ready to receive Christ, or to come back to Jesus. Would you just slip your hand? I want to pray with you today. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Who else? There's a couple of individuals over here. Yes. Thank you in the back. For those that are raising your hands, I want to just lead you in a prayer. And church, would you just pray with me? Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for my sin. Today, I put my faith in you. Clean up my heart. Make it clean. I put my faith in you, and I trust you. Help me to serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. It's not the words of that prayer that will save you. It's believing in your heart. And for those that raised your hand, there are a few here. Um, I want to meet you at the Connection Center. And I want we've got some tools that will help you to grow. And, uh, and I know we're going a little long today, uh, longer than we uh, have been uh, in, the, in this season at least. But, but there's something special that's happening in this season. The Lord is drawing. He is saving. And we have got to be committed more than ever that we exist to bring Jesus' name to others. To have this idea that there's nothing else in our hearts or in our lives that are more important. We live and breathe for Jesus. And today, we want to close with that song that captures that. It's called Nothing Else. And so without further ado, Pastor Bobby, lead us. And uh, and then I'll meet you in the lobby. Amen. Yes, Jesus, you are all we want. You are all we need. Lord, and you meet all of our needs. Lord, let people look at us as we go out, as we are being commissioned into a lost and broken world. Let them see how we're different. Let them see how we're weird. Let them see, God, how you have called us to be set apart and to be different by our love. Lord, let us be people who not take offense. Let us be people who hold everything with open arms. Let us be people who are willing to go that extra mile. Lord, you are calling us to go further. You are calling us to go deeper. And so we are following after you. We are diving in. And we pray as we are being sent out into a lost and broken world as salt and light that you would go before us, that you would be behind us, and that you would be all around us. Lord, we worship you. Let us live lives of worship and lives of sacrifice as we leave this place today. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory and all the honor. And all God's people together say amen. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Now go in the grace of God. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegateway.church.